Hey everybody, Bob Olson here with Afterlife TV. You can find us at afterlifetv.com. This is where we talk about life after death and answer the meaningful questions you have around that subject. Today we're going to be talking about the five faces of grief. And probably not the only faces of grief, but there are certainly five that we are going to talk about today. Today's episode is sponsored by Best Psychic Directory. If you've been thinking about going to a psychic or a medium, a lot of people are interested in mediums, especially those who are grieving. And so I have personally vetted all the people on bestpsychicdirectory.com. Now, today is a very special episode because it is an interview with a very dear friend of mine and Melissa's that came out with a new book. And we haven't had an episode in a while. I know you'll be happy about that. We might not have one for another little while after this. <laughs> so don't think like I'm back on a roll here. I'm not because uh, I'm still working very, very diligently on my screenplay for the Magic Mala. So I appreciate your patience with that, but it won't be long. Today, we're talking about a new book called Waking Up in Winter in Search of What Really Matters at Midlife with Cheryl Richardson. Welcome, Cheryl. Hi, Bob. Hey, listen, I want to just read the back cover here because it is impressive to me. And it also talks a lot about where you've come from and where you were when you wrote this book. Cheryl Richardson is the New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Take Time for Your Life, Life Makeovers, Stand Up for Your Life, The Unmistakable Touch of Grace, The Art of Extreme Self-Care, and you co-authored You Can Create an Exceptional Life with Louise Hay. Her work has been covered widely in the media, including on Good Morning America, The Today Show, and CBS This Morning, and in the New York Times, USA Today, Good Housekeeping, and oh, the Oprah Magazine. She was the team leader for the Lifestyle Makeover series on the Oprah Winfrey Show, and she accompanied Ms. Winfrey on the Live Your Best Life nationwide tour. Richardson also served as co-executive producer and host of the Life Makeover Project with Cheryl Richardson on the Oxygen Network and as co-executive producer and host of two public television specials, Stand Up For Your Life and Create An Abundant Life. She lives in Massachusetts. Today, we're talking about a new book called Waking Up In Winter. Tell us about this mm -hmm. book. So it is a journal. So it's a memoir in journal form, and it was inspired by Mae Sarton, who was uh, a writer. She wrote fiction and nonfiction and poetry and uh, she lived here in New England, New Hampshire, Maine. And um, yeah, I, I found her first journal called Journal of a Solitude back in, I think I found it in the mid-80s. I write it in the book. I forget the actual date, but I was at a book fair at a church and I saw it. And it the subtitle was something like, you know, the year in, a year in the intimate journal of a creative woman or something like that. And she was yeah. a writer who had kept this journal. And, and I was not a published writer at the time, but I remember thinking, wow, I would love an inside view into a writer's life because I imagined that I was going to be publishing at some point. And so I got the book and I read it and it was just that. It was, she was writing about her life, her writing, her writing process, where she wrote, how she dealt with reviews, both positive and negative, how she dealt with dealing with the public, um, giving talks about her books, going to universities and things like that. And she also had quite an impressive cadre of, of literary friends. And so it was this awesome experience of going behind the scenes of somebody who was doing what I dreamt about doing at some point in my life. Yeah. And she would go on to publish a series of journals about her life. And it turned out that Mae Sarton also loved some of the things I loved, flowers, nature, animals, and um, and she and those were very significant parts of her day that she would write about as well. Yeah. So you really kind of got to know her. You got to get, have a sense of who she was and the environment in which she lived and the animals that spent time with her. And so every time she'd publish a journal, you know, you felt like you could continue on with her life. And I loved it. And she wrote journals all the way, published journals all the way until 83 when she died. Her last journal was called At 83. Hmm. And um, and yeah, so it was, you know, Michael, my husband, you know, Michael, was the one who, when I was sort of 
trying to figure out what I was going to write next, he said to me, why don't you just publish a journal? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've always loved May Sarton, but why don't you give people an inside view into a writer's life and a teacher's life in the 21st century? And I felt both terrified and excited yeah. about doing that. And I knew, okay, I needed to pay attention to that because anytime you feel both of those things together, it's a good indication to at least explore it. And that's what I did and ultimately ended up publishing a journal. Amazing. Now, what terrified you about it? I mean, really what terrified me about it was questions like, who's going to want to read about your life? Like what we all do, right? When we're writing, you know, what, what do you have to say that's new and different? Um, it's a complete departure from what I've done. I've written six self-help books. Will you really do a disservice to your audience by doing something completely different than what you've done before? And also, I mean, honestly, when you put a book out into the world, you really put yourself out into the world. And I knew that it's one thing to get negative reviews about a self-help how-to book. It just felt it was even more personal and more vulnerable to put my life on the page. And it's it's really a journal. And it's not a journal that I wrote knowing that I was going to publish it. This is a journal that existed beforehand. And I did that intentionally because I wanted it to be a true journal. I didn't, I knew I wasn't mature enough as a journal publisher to be able to write a book without being self-conscious yeah. about the reader. So I chose a journal that already existed. And, you know, I knew that I was opening myself up to people, not only criticizing the book, but commenting on my personal life. Sure. Sure. Very intimate writings here, revealing feelings that you probably didn't know when you were writing in your journal that you would be sharing these with other people. A lot of people I know already, uh, this book just came out in December, are really appreciating the fact that you were willing to take that risk. It's working for the book. It's working for your your audience and the readers. And it was certainly something that I enjoyed. I know you very well, and I really enjoyed this book because to me, one of the most wonderful things about this book is it gives any reader the opportunity to hear the life story of a self-help author and recognize that you too are struggling to live and, and not just speak, but live the things that you talk about. Like, you know, the extreme self-care book, all those things that you teach, you also constantly have to re remind yourself yeah. of those things that you teach and ask yourself, where am I right now in reference to what I'm preaching to other people? Yeah, I mean, one of the the, the pieces of feedback that I get, I mean, my, my writing has always been pretty self-disclosing. It's just, you know, I teach from my own experience. It's kind of like, I'm very clear and have been clear for a number of years that part of my purpose here is to really well, let me say it this way. My number one priority is my own growth and evolution. And then I just share what I learn as I go along. This is a different way of sharing that, right? And um, and yeah, I love it when people say to me, oh my God, you're not perfect. You don't have it all together. You haven't figured it all out. Or I was really surprised when I read your book that you struggle with things. You still struggle with stuff. It's like, yeah, it's called being a human being yeah. on planet earth. And life happens. Hard things happen. We have grief. You know, We have losses. Um, we have major changes in our life, both internal and external changes. And I'm always searching for how do I, how do I really stay connected to what's true for me, my own authentic truth, my own authentic voice? How do I need to grow so that I can stay true to that voice? And then how do I express it in all that I do, whether it's my personal relationships or my writing or my teaching? You know, I want everything to be an expression of just what's true for me. And so in order to do that, I've got to be willing to constantly cultivate a sense of self-awareness that lets me know, okay, wait a second here. You know, I guess I guess I would say that from I've known from a very, very young age that on some level, I came to the planet this time to do a lot of personal work. Like yeah. I've just known that for a long time. And anytime I've had astrology readings, astrologers will say to me, okay, girl, you better buckle up because this life is a lot about learning lessons and um, and growing and evolving. So I've always known that. So I'm always, I will naturally share that journey with readers because it's something I'm always engaged in. Like, am I being honest with myself? Yeah. Therefore, am I being honest with others? 
You know, one of the things I noticed about you before I read the book, for instance, let me use this example. When you read a, a, a self-help book yourself written by somebody else, I have read the same book. We're talking about it together. And then you're talking about um, the exercises that you did. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, exercise, what exercise? I didn't do the exercises. You know, you always do the exercises. You always follow through with what the author suggests that you do. And of course, that falls right in line with, especially your first books, because you gave a lot of sort of homework to yeah. people in every chapter. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it helped people to learn and grow from that. And what was really interesting is your authentic self is to not just put these exercises in your book and expect people just to not do them and move on to the next chapter because you too, actually, when you read other people's books, follow through with those exercises. Well, in some ways it's, it's the coach in me that knows that the only way our lives change is by taking action, right? You can gather all the information you want, all the wisdom you want from other people, but if you don't put it into action in some way, then things aren't going to change. And so even when I think about this book, you know, waking up in winter and the fact that it's a journal, Part of the reason I wanted to publish this one was I wanted to show people how I take action on a regular, like what I do to grow and evolve and to question my life and to question myself. And, and you know, this particular journal, this particular period really was about, it was a hero's journey. So it was, it was a period in my life where uh, I started to really rethink everything. And there were, there's things that I did. I went to see a therapist and I write about you know, what happened during therapy sessions. And I was doing dream work and I include dreams and what I learned about myself. And, you know, I talk about past life regression, which was really scary for me to do that. I mean, it happens to be a form of therapy I'm a huge fan of and have been for over 20 years. I mean, my first regression work was done probably 25 years ago and had a profound impact on my life. And so I, I couldn't, I mean, it was part of that journal, and I thought, I went back and forth, do I want to leave that in? It's like, well, yeah, because this is what I did, and it was really significant during this period that is covered in the journal. It really played a huge role in my life, so these are the things I do. And so, yeah, if I'm reading a book, well, I think about the Magic Mala. When I read the Magic Mala, right, I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a reminder that crafting consistent thoughts, like just paying attention in some systematic, practical way to how we're thinking on a regular basis has a profound impact on your life. And that's why, you know, it's funny this morning as I was getting ready to come up here, I have this jewelry case that I opened up and I have all these malas hanging, you know, (laughs) because I've been collecting them. I mean, I've collected them over the years, but I was looking at them thinking, you know, they're just so important to me. And now, you know, I read that book, I take it out. I have a set of mala beads next to my bed. I do my gratitude list or I'll, you know, if I'm focusing on something, I mean, yeah, I know that the only way things will get better for all of us is if we do something different. We don't just think about it or talk about it. You put it into action. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a, one of the Amazon reviews. Someone said, what the book did for me was deliver so much relief that what I am going through is most likely much more common than I thought. Mm-hmm. And it just made me feel so much less broken. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things people are able to relate to. Look, you bathe in this stuff. You you yeah. think about this midlife, you think about midlife, but you, you know, before that, it was whatever that stage was you were going through. You think about these things very deeply on, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Some of these people are just very, very busy. They got kids, they got jobs, they, you know, got all kinds of things going on. And they might not have the time to do that sort of a thing. And so someone else who's going through midlife might, like this woman, you know, might think there's something wrong with me, you know, and and then they read about you and here you are, the self-help author, very successful, who also is going through the same things. I think that's one of the great benefits of waking up in winter. Well, you know, that kind of a review really touches my heart because, you know, it's funny, this time when I published this book, unlike all my other books, I didn't have a publishing contract. Yeah. I had no deadline and no promise to anybody. Mm. And I did that because I swear to you, to, up till the day that I pressed send. Yeah. So even after I had a contract, when I made a decision you know, to publish with Harper One, up till the day I pressed send, I was still debating on whether or not to publish this book. Yeah. And um, what I hoped most of all is that 
women in particular would read this book, women in transition, especially midlife women, would read this book and feel a sense of comfort in knowing that they're not alone. Um, because I, I mean, I can go back, I bet you can too, Bob, I can go all the way back to the beginning, reading Louise Hay, Shakti Gawain, um, I mean, so many, you know, a lot of the early Emmett Fox mm. um, memoirs of, of early self-help teachers and being just, I can just remember feeling so comforted reading their books like, oh my God, you know, I'm not alone here. There is a path and, uh, and I'm not broken. I mean, I love that she said I'm not broken. I mean, we're yeah. not broken. That's we're right. just trying to find our way home, you know? Yeah. And, and none of us are perfect, you know, and, and, and anybody who's pretending to be is not doing one of the things you talk about that I love so much in this book is uh, basically living from a more authentic place. Yeah. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, Waking Up in Winter, the new book, Waking Up in Winter, In Search of What Really Matters at Midlife by Cheryl Richardson. Cheryl's joining me here. And we're actually going to talk about something that I called the five faces of grief. That was just uh, something that we can focus on today. But um, let's see, one, two, three, four... At least four of them are directly pulled from your book. Your book mm -hmm. is not uh, a book about grief, mm -hmm. but you could certainly say in some ways there's a, there's a theme of loss within there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And let's start with the first, because when you're talking about midlife and you're talking about the struggles that some people go through, through midlife, my first face of grief here, I, I just called youth. One of the things mm -hmm. that we're losing or, you know, we're, we're passing by is our youth. Yeah. Uh, what, can you, what can you say about that? Well, uh, right in the beginning of the book, I talk about the day I turned 50. And um, let me just say that I've always been somebody who celebrated my birthday. I actually, one of the real benefits of being somebody who does this work on a regular basis is life just feels like it gets better and better. Yeah. It doesn't mean that everything's like, hunky-dory, fine, no problems. No, it just feels like I feel like I'm able to handle life better. I'm able to be more present to life, to accept what happens, to work through the challenges that I get faced with. And um, and so I've always been someone who looks forward to birthdays. I don't dread them, just like I don't dread the, the beginning of the year. Yeah. Um, a lot of people do when they're not living life authentically, when they're not living life the way, you know, the way that they want to. That's right. Or that they imagined they could. So, um, but the day I turned 50, it was really interesting. Literally that day, my birthday, I was on an exercise machine in my home and I thought, wow, 50, you know, I, chances are I've got more years behind me than ahead of me. Mm. And I started to think about things like, you know, I wonder how long I'll be here. I wonder who will die first, me or Michael. You know, I wonder if I do die first, who's going to like, you know, look through my journals? Like, what am I going to do with my journals? Although I will say in my estate planning, um, I want to be cremated in the journals. Come with me. There we all go. get cremated together. Yeah. That was the decision. There was, it was scary to think about it. And yet I knew, you know, what the hell? I mean, it's the truth. Like, let's just dive into it. And I really began to explore things like, what would I regret not doing? Who would I regret not becoming? And what does it mean to get older and to say goodbye to certain things that my physical body won't do anymore? I mean, I'm a huge believer in the fact that if we keep telling ourselves, you know, we have to pay attention to what we say to ourselves, right? Oh, right. I'm getting older. Oh, I'm at midlife. Oh, it's all downhill from here. I mean, those like, <laughs> That's crazy right. things that we hear. I hear people say, like, you know, I, I mean, you know, I spend enough time with Louise Hay to know, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but the reality is that there is a stage we enter at midlife where. We don't have the same energy for things that we used to. Right. So if you don't want to call it physical energy, then let's just call it psychic energy or mm -hmm. or energy in general, because life is energy. And I am I do have more wrinkles and I do have sagginess in my body in places I didn't before and my skin feels different. And um I I can't uh, you know, I'm strong. I mean, one of the things I did do after turning fifty was made a decision to invest even more um, seriously in my strength and my muscle strength, because I figured for as long as I'm going to be here, I want to be in good shape so I can really enjoy it. That's right. But there's certain things that you do lose. And we're not a culture that is interested in having that conversation. Instead, we glorify youth and we want to just pretend that we're going to live forever. And I think that just does a real disservice to ourselves, to each other, our relationships, right. um, 
and to the kind of life that we lead. So, uh, yeah, we lose. There's, there's a lot of things, you know, there's, I have arthritis in my fingers and it comes from years of typing. Yep. And, you know, when I first started to see, and believe me, I've had like a million people tell me, well, if you change your diet, if you, and I, and I get, yeah. I know about all that stuff. And, yeah. and while I absolutely change my diet and it's, you know, low inflammatory, you know, uh, anti-inflammatory diet and all of that, the reality is these hands have been working for a long time and they've lost something. Right. And what does that mean? And how do we integrate the real losses that come with aging into our lives? I think that's an important question to explore. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and you know, one example that comes to me, you know, I, I exercise and I don't recover like I used to, mm-hmm. you know. So I actually have to pace myself and, and think about how hard am I going to exercise because uh, I may feel this for the next few days. Okay. I remember, and this was probably a decade ago, um, someone asked me to help them move. And I actually thought about, geez, if I help them move, like I'm going to be sore, you know, for days after that, because I'm using parts of my body that I'm not used to using. And that was the beginning of my midlife, you know, experience of recognizing my body is not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And then, but then you got, you know, you get your mind, <laughs> you got your, your looks, whatever. You got all kinds of things that go along with growing older. Again, these are things that we grieve, and uh, we get to see in waking up in winter uh, what your process was for for dealing with mm-hmm. the grief of youth in this particular case. Yeah. Now, the second one uh, I want to talk about was career, because that was a big one for you as well. Mm-hmm. At, at the age of 54, things are changing for you. You were very candid about, about how your career was changing, uh, much of it consciously, some of it you know, also unconsciously, uh, it was just happening the way it was happening, but you were also recognizing, you know, new voices coming up. And I loved how candid you were about that. Yeah. You're being very sweet about it. I mean, I, I write about the fact that, you know, there were a couple of period, a couple of experiences I had. I remember them distinctly where I was watching, uh, in one case I was watching, uh, uh, a colleague who's much younger than I am and is really just a beautiful teacher, this young woman. Uh, Another case, I had received a blog from another uh, colleague of mine who's younger than I am. Um, Both of them just really very successful, really hip, really uh, speaking to lots of people. I mean, you know, helping lots of people. And, um, And I write very candidly about how, you know, one day I woke up and read the blog and started thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not relevant anymore. I'm the elder. I'm not that young, hip person. You know, and again, we talk about youth, you know, you know, I'll probably never fit into that size dress ever again. And yeah. nor do I want to. I mean, it's just where I'm like, that's not a priority. I'd have to do a lot of work to get there. I could get there, but I'd have to do a lot of work. Sure. I want to use my energy in other places. Um, and so... Yeah, I I just decided again it was it was a journal so it was honest just exploring instead of pushing it under the rug and ignoring it just really looking at okay what does it mean to be to become an elder in my work you know to be somebody who has been around for a while and uh and then I thought about some of the elders that I had the privilege of having Louise Hay was one of them, Marion Woodman, who was a Jungian analyst, who was a very important mentor and teacher of mine early on, who was an elder. Uh, you know, th- these people had a profound impact on my life. I still do. I mean, I'm still talking about them today. And there are things that I do every day of my life that were inspired by these people. And so I began to just really start to both own what was no longer going to be, because let me also just say that from a career standpoint, because we're talking about the loss of career, you know, at some point, and this was a big theme in this book, this kind of CEO woman, make it all happen, push, 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 drive, you know, write the 75,000 blogs and get on media, you know, just everything you need to do to be a well-known teacher that I had done all my life. Uh, you know, my for my career, at some point, it's like enough already. Yeah. You know, um, when I started to look at the amount of time I was spending in a car, driving to the airport, sitting in the airport, sitting on a plane, back in a car, to the hotel, in a hotel room by myself, 
all of that to get on stage for 90 minutes to speak in front of 3,000 people, which I loved. Mm -hmm. But that was a lot of time before and after that I suddenly recognized was very valuable time. And all of that work as examples, or same thing with television, you know, getting on a plane, going to the, you know, all the producing work you do beforehand, it's a lot of work. And so I had to deal with, um, and it's a lot of very heady, toxic work. I mean, not toxic. That's not what I mean. What do I want to say? Um, it's interesting that that word came out. Taxing? Uh, no, uh, no, um, it's like seductive, which is probably why I said toxic, but it's (laughs) (laughs) right because, because, you know, it's, it can be really, um, it just can be so seductive to do things like be on television or to have lots of people writing to you or to have a best-selling book, to have a number one New York Times. I mean, it's, I mean, on one hand, I am so blessed and grateful. I've had an amazing career. And what I'm most grateful for is the way that my work has helped people. And I know that it has. Um, that stuff, there's a certain, um, and we all go through this in different ways in our careers. There's a certain way in which we have to face the music that the highlight of our career may be over and it may be time to to just go about doing your work in a different way. And I think that's what started to get unraveled in this journal. Well, right. I, I think so too. The other thing that I took away from it was that, because we are talking about loss, when you talk about grief, you're talking about loss. But really, once you read this book, you recognize Yes, there is a loss. There's always a loss when things change, right? There's, but there's things to be gained. And, yeah. and so it's really about career change, you know, whereas youth, yes. okay, <laughs> you're never going to be young again, right? Uh, at least not in this lifetime. Right. But, um, but with career, it's not necessarily that you're losing something and then there's like a void or an emptiness. It can change and it can become something different. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an important point. You said it really beautifully when you said, well, there are some things that you lose. There's also some things that you gain. So those losses are tempered by what you gain. More time with loved ones, more time for me, more time in nature, more time with, you know, my my dear little animal who was a soulmate, um, more time uh, just to myself, more time to write, more time to create art. I mean, uh, more time to have deeper conversations with people to to develop and offer programs that are closer to home and allow me to really delve deep with people instead of delivering a keynote on stage. But you know what? It's awesome to get on stage in front of 3,000 people and to feel this amazing connection with the audience. That would, That's a loss that I'm still, you know, it doesn't mean I'll never do it again. I probably will at some point, but not like I did before. And there's a certain magic that happens that you do lose. But there's a new magic that happens, like sitting on the back deck at sunset and suddenly a hummingbird shows up in front of my face and, you know, flutters there for 30 seconds. And, I th- and I'm and i like breathless because I'm so just joy filled at, at what I just experienced. And that makes up for it. So that's right. The other thing is, though, we don't know what we don't know uh, as far as about the future. Well, that's, um, I mean, look at Louise Hay, That's what I was right? going to say. I know. So Louise Hay, I know, I know. how old was she? 60 years old when she started Hay House. Okay. Yeah. So you're not even there yet. And no, that's right. where she started her career. Well, and you know what? She had somebody like Reed Tracy who stepped in very early on and did all the heavy lifting yes. so that she could just do. And, and that, I mean, you're making, I mean, thank you, Bob, because I know what you're doing, which is, it's not like I'm rolling over and dying people. It's just that I am bringing my work to the world in a different way. And I am also really gratefully surrounding myself with wonderful people who are supporting me so that I can just be focused on the kind of helping work that I know I'm here to do and that I get so fed by that I want to do. You know, it's interesting. This is going to be a little different because I, I, I had this thought recently, um, about midlife, uh, you know, because I was reading your book. But also, I recognize that um, some people might look at me and think, oh, Bob's going through a midlife crisis. And I don't see it that way. Really? And, and Why? What are you doing? Well, it's a, for instance, um, so, you know, I got a motorcycle. I got one of those three-wheel motorcycles. It's a spider. It's awesome. Show, show and I have oh been out God. on it. Oh, my gosh. Can I just tell you, it's like a highlight of my summer last year. It's, it's so much fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking about getting a sports car. 
and same thing. That, that'll just convince some people who he really is going. <laughs> but it's interesting because my perspective on it is I'm not doing these things to get back my youth. Right. I'm doing these things because I now have the means to do what I always wanted to do. Right. I always wanted to be able to own a Spire or, you know, I always wanted to be able to own a sports car before I just couldn't afford it. Right. Um, and also, you know, we have... I, now I have, you know, just the means. That can mean time. Well, yeah, that I was going to say. Abundance. That can mean. You oh. have the time also to be able to enjoy. And that's just it. In this stage of our lives, you know, when you come out of the householder stage where you've just been working your butt off, and, you know, you and I both know that. I mean, we've worked really, really hard, more than a full time job for sure. Right. Um, unlike parents who, I don't know how they do it, you know, because neither one of us have children, but people have you know, who are raising oh. kids are working like five full-time jobs in one life, one day, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but we've worked hard for a very long time. And now part of the beauty of midlife is deciding, you know what, I'm going to create some space in my life. And all of the things that I've wanted to do, now I'm going to really assess those and say, okay, I mean, for you, it's not about the spider or the sports car, because I know you, it's about being out in nature. Yep. Surrounded by beauty. I mean, when I think about the day you and I did the spider ride, I mean, you know, we're out in all the elements, we're driving by the ocean, the sun is out, the waves are crap. I mean, oh. I know, look at you. Yeah. I can just see Can't you. wait to get back I out there. I can't wait either. <laughs> so it, was, it, it wasn't about the things. It was about the fact that we were now giving ourselves, we, are, we were exposing ourselves to the elements that are so important to our soul. That's right. You know, it's it, it's it's about the experience. Uh, yes, exactly right. You know, and, and the same. It's it's funny because Michael and I were just having this conversation the other night. Um, you know, for me, the sports car. If if I could have invisible an invisible sports car, so nobody would see me in it, yes. that would be even better for me. I. I don't care to be seen in it. It's not about that. Yeah. It's about the experience of driving the sports yeah, car. Yeah, he's the same way. Yeah. And, well, you know, and let me just say this about men. Um, you know, I'm married to an artist who has loved cars since he was a little boy. That's really his only thing. Like, he doesn't spend a lot of money except on cars yeah. or designing. Like, you know, he's, you know, designing our home, let's say. But for him, cars are like art on wheels. Right. And so every day when he walks out to the garage and he sees his sports car, it's beauty that speaks to his soul. And I think that's true for a lot of men when it comes to cars to tell you, yeah, there are some of us who are trying to reclaim our youth, but I think it's more than that. And I think we do men a disservice by just, you know, oh, you're going through a midlife crisis. I find that kind of demeaning. And Well, it is, but I think it's also just a misunderstanding yeah, as exactly. well. You know, I saw I saw an episode of some some show, um, and there was like five guys staring at uh, like a vintage Corvette, and one of the, the guys' wives come out and she goes, I, "I'll just never understand it." You know, they're just standing <laughs> yeah. there staring at yeah, it. Yeah, I can tell you, I totally understand it now. Being married to Michael, I do. <laughs> so we've talked about youth. Number one, number two, career. These are these are faces. What I call faces of grief. Different ways that uh, as we age, as we get older. There, there's, there's loss involved, and because of it, we grieve that loss. The third one I wanted to talk about was tribes. Now, you, you use the word tribes in your book, Waking Up in Winter, and I liked that word. I, I know a lot of people use it. Were other ways to describe tribes? How would you describe it? Well, I think, um, I think early on in the book when I talked about self-care, I think I was doing an interview with a young woman in Germany who was really feeling like self-care, what meant that, you know, you were telling people to be arrogant and selfish and inappropriate and all of that. That was, I think, the first time when I talked about tribes, meaning that tribes are the systems that we grow up in. Uh, well, I'll say one, my, one of my definitions for tribes, particularly in this book, is the systems that we grow up in, whether it's the family system, the educational system, the religious system, the political system, whatever it might be. Uh, really have such a powerful influence on us, especially early on, right? Because we know from the study of brain science that from in utero to uh, five, six years old, so much of what a child takes in gets, you know, filed in the subconscious and then begins running their lives as adults. So yeah. um, these systems are really powerful. And the closer the system, the, the, the stronger the engagement with the system, the more powerful they are. So our family of origin um, we grow up with certain rules and certain guidelines and certain beliefs. And as we get older, 
if we're awake enough and we're doing this work, we start to really question those beliefs and rules. And at midlife, I think one of the real gifts of midlife, at least for me and for a lot of women that I've spoken to, is that your suck it up muscles go slack. And suddenly, you know, you start to realize, wait a minute, I don't want to get up at seven in the morning. Um, this is a this is a very common one for human beings, interestingly enough. I don't want to get up early, and I'm not going to judge myself for getting up early. Um, if I sleep until eight or nine o'clock, I'm going to decide that my body wants to go to bed later and get up later. And who made up this rule that said, you know, the early bird catches the worm, and you know, if you sleep late, you're lazy or you're irresponsible or whatever? I hear a lot of people talk about that. Yeah. So I talk about challenging, paying attention to the rules that were created by the tribes we grew up in and or high schools have tribes. When you think about the cliques in high school, right. colleges, sororities have, have tribes, um, our workplaces become tribes. And what are the messages? How are we not living authentically? We go back to that. And with that, another theme in the book is how our relationships change, the loss of friendships, the loss of certain connections maybe to family members how our relationships change as we grow and evolve, because they will. Some of them will change. Some marriages will end. I talk about a very close friendship for many years that ended and needing to end it consciously together as a a partnership. And I talk about revisiting my marriage and, and really looking at my relationship with Michael and some of the things that we were doing that were influenced by the tribes we grew up in yeah. that needed to change. And I think that's a big topic that comes up at midlife that causes us to face one of the most difficult losses we face. And that's saying goodbye to people we've loved and been in relationships with um, while they're still alive. And we just know the relationship has to end. Yeah. I know a, a married couple who ended up getting divorced and what was interesting, so they had children pretty young, early 20s. And then when their kids went off to college, <laughs> suddenly there was nobody in the house but them. Them, right. And it had been a long time. And all of a sudden they recognized they had nothing in common anymore. They wanted different things from life. And they hadn't had the opportunity, they hadn't had the time or the space to talk about those things. In fact, uh, the guy I know didn't even really want to think about those things. And she had been thinking about those things. Finally, she had the opportunity to try to talk to him about it. And she realized they wanted very different things from life. So they realized they weren't compatible anymore. And they left one another. And in some ways, it was a loss. It was even a loss to me because, oh, here's my friends. They're they're not together anymore. And, you know, we're never going to get together as a group, you know, with them. In other ways, I was very happy for, especially her, because she knew what she wanted. He just wanted the same. So I was very happy for her that she got to do the things that she wants to do that he would have held her back from. But then I also felt bad for him because he wanted things to stay the same. Yeah. And and because she didn't want that anymore, um, he, he was having a loss that he was really out of control of. Um, he could have changed to be what she wanted, but that wouldn't have been right either. So it's very interesting that we see these things, but we not only do we lose friends and and lose groups of friends and and these tribes that you talk about, but um, we see our lives change because they're they're splitting up. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, and that happens a lot. I mean, I hear from so many women who say, you know, I'm reading these books, I'm doing this work, I'm becoming more awake and aware, and how do I get my husband or my partner on board. Yeah. Um, Because it's sad. You know, sometimes we outgrow people and sometimes every soul has their own spiritual path. That's what I always tell people. You know, we're souls. We're not human beings. We're souls. We're in a physical body. It's my belief anyway. Mm. And um, we all have our own spiritual paths. And honestly, for some people, their spiritual path is to stay the same. Yeah. Like they, they chose to come here for that reason. And we need to respect that. And so sometimes it does mean friendships end or relationships end. And that's a great point that I didn't even think of, which is how it then influences us, because suddenly you don't have the couple to hang out with anymore in the same way. And and I think we see that happening more and more as we get older into midlife. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. So we're talking about youth, career, tribes, the fourth one. So now we're going to get into things that uh, certainly the Afterlife TV audience is a little more familiar with. And we're talking about loved ones who pass. We've talked about loved ones uh, where we have losses, like we were just talking about. 
In this particular case, it would be loved ones who pass. You talk a lot about uh, a good friend of yours, Debbie Ford, yeah. and uh, you talk about that in the book. And and so it's and you talk about her a lot. She comes up where it keeps reminding you of what an impact she had yeah. on you, but not just her life, but also her passing had on mm-hmm. you. Uh, so what do you want to what do you want to say about loved yeah. ones? I mean, so. Losing Debbie was Debbie was a real catalyst for this particular period of my life, this hero's journey that I go on that I didn't realize till I got to the end and and went back to to edit this journal. It was like, oh, for crying out loud, this has been a hero's journey. And um, yeah, when Debbie died, uh, it was a very uh, it was a surreal experience for me because we were we were close, we were colleagues, we were fellow writers and teachers. We had done teaching together and workshops together and television. We were both on Oprah together. And um, so that when she died, I saw her a couple of days. Um, The last time I saw her was two days before she died. And she, um, you know, she said to me, along with take more vacations, you know, she said something really powerful. She said, listen, you know, right now, it doesn't matter how many best-selling books I've had. It doesn't matter how many fans I have on Facebook or followers on Twitter. Um, All that matters is my son and what's going to happen to him you know, my loved ones that I'm leaving and where I'm going from here. And that was really potent because I felt like I was at my own deathbed. You know, we, we, we had lived such similar lives. And then she also said, stop doing things that bore you, which was really bizarre, like I, just out of the blue. Mm. And we talked about that and, um, and it stayed with me. And um, I realized, I remember thinking when I got in the car to driving back to my uh, a friend's house that I was staying at, I remember thinking, well, this, you know, I'm entering that stage in my life where I'm going to start to lose people. You know, I've since then lost my father and lost my cat and and lost some other friendships. And so, yeah, it's part of that. We are invited, I guess, sometimes forced, but invited to build a relationship with the loss of the physical presence of people. And, you know, thank God for your work, Bob. I mean, really, I can't tell you. First of all, I keep a stack of afterlife, um, answers about the afterlife in my library, (laughs) um, because I'm always giving that book out. I think it's such a beautiful gift for people who are grieving. Um, And uh, and your video on suicide. I mean, I just posted that yesterday on Facebook because somebody was really struggling and I went and found it. And I mean, it's just enormously, we don't talk about these things enough. And uh, people really struggle and they suffer in silence in the most horrible ways. And so your work has been so helpful to me. Um, you know, when I lost my dad, I mean, I just, I knew he wasn't really, his physical body was gone, but that his consciousness and his spirit was around me. And um, and I think that we are invited to build a relationship to, we're invited to enter into a relationship with loss in a different way. And for me with Debbie, you know, that was... Uh, it was an important part of this particular journal because it really, you know, not only did it, was it instrumental in me rethinking how I was working and how I was living, but also it was instrumental. It was teaching me how to, how to survive the loss of a love, somebody you really deeply cared about that's, you can't pick up the phone and call them, you know, yeah. and it's like, just so weird. I mean, sometimes I still... I think, oh my God, I wish Debbie was here because we used to coach each other. And right. wouldn't I love her wisdom about such and such right now? Yep. You know, so. Yeah. 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 Even since writing this particular journal, you lost Debbie, you lost your father. Yeah. But probably friends along the way. Yeah. Um, uh, one of your early losses was your friend Lucy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was the first one. First time I was up close and personal to death in 91. And it was such a gift because I actually got to be with her when she died. She didn't have any family. And up until that point, I'd been terrified of death, let alone being with a dead body. Yeah. And um, she gave me such a gift. You know, it, it really, it was a sacred experience to actually be with someone when they took their last breath. And and she was in her 80s and she had lived a full life, just like Louise. I mean, I also, you know, we lost Louise this year. That's right. Um, but Louise was, you know, also lived an incredibly full life and was ready to go, as was Lucy. Yeah. So that was different. And it was an interesting experience, That's right. a really lovely experience, because both of them were willing to talk about dying and the dying process. And uh, most people who get older, you know, the older generations, don't. We don't talk about death. And we do people such a disservice, because if we were to talk about it and prepare for it, 
it could just be a very sacred experience. And there's yeah. a lot to be said, you know, about that topic. We should do another whole podcast sometime about just, how do you prepare for, how do you be with people when they're dying? Yeah. You know? I've had a lot of people tell me they, they gave a copy of answers about the afterlife to their friend who was terminally ill yeah. and they knew they were, they were uh, soon to pass and that their friend was very fearful of death, yeah. but they didn't know how to talk to them about it. So they gave him the book and said, read it if you want, yeah. don't if you don't. Yeah. And that usually led to conversations after. Which is such a gift. And what's wonderful about that book is I love the format, the Q&A format, because you can give it to somebody who maybe would be like, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk about death, but you just leave it with them and they can open it up and like choose where they want to, yeah. you know, what they want to read about. That's right. It's a great resource in that way. I, I think it's a great conversation that anybody can have with their friends and family members. You know, for many people, it would be very odd and, and strange, but if you can get over the discomfort of starting that conversation with somebody, maybe just ask them. We, uh, we, you and I and, and Melissa and Michael have had this conversation about, you know, how, uh, how do we want to die? Um, what do we want to happen after our deaths? Yeah. Those kinds of questions that a lot of people don't know when somebody dies. Right. They don't know what it is that they want. Do they want to be cremated, buried, do they want a stone? Do they, you know, what do they want? Who do you want coming into your house? Like, yeah. you know, I remember our lawyer, our estate lawyer saying to us, okay, you've just died. The both of you have just died. Who's going to have the key to your house to come in to see everything that's in there? And that was like a big wake up call. Like, holy mackerel. Yeah. Who do we want? Like who's, you know, if the both of us were to go. Yeah. And if one of us were to go, who are we going to call upon to be there for the other? Because I know... You know, I mean, I know we're going to talk about pet loss. Having lost my um, Poupon, my cat, just a couple months ago, you know, it, it really just put death in a very different perspective. Like, you know, the grieving of that was incredibly painful and I needed support. And, you know, just thinking about who are you going to turn to for support? Yeah. Um, should you lose a loved one? Just the other day, I was having a conversation with a very c close friend, someone I've known for over 30 years. And she said to me, I'm so afraid of my husband dying. He's so important to me. She said, but I know that if he died, I'd be on a plane and I'd be at your house. Yeah. Because I know that's where I'd want to be. Yeah. And I just was so touched by that. I thought, and I would want you here, you know? Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's sweet, thoughtful. Uh, we're talking about the five faces of grief. This is just five things that I came up with that four of them really came out of Cheryl's new book, Waking Up in Winter, In Search of What Really Matters at Midlife. That is not a book about grief, but certainly within her uh, journal, talking about her own life, these are things that obviously stood out to me. And then the fifth one was very interesting because just as your book was coming out, mm -hmm. um, you lost your pet Poupon. Mm -hmm. And Poupon is a cat that you had for 10, yeah, 10 years. And, years yeah. and he obviously had a big presence in this book. Yes, he did. And so anybody who reads it will recognize how important he was in your life. In fact, you were making decisions about your career and, and the changes partly because you wanted to be able to spend more time mm -hmm. with Poupon. Yeah. And this is true for a lot of people. A lot of people feel this way about their pets. And we recognize that our pets don't live a long time right. when, it, uh, right. in, in when you think about it. So tell us about what you, what you have to say about the this fifth face of grief when we're talking about the loss of pets. Well, yeah, I mean, like Mae Sarton, who wrote about her dogs and her cats in her journals over the years, <clears throat> and the loss of them, um, I did not expect to be, you know, at 10 and a half years, Poupon was 10 and a half years old, I didn't expect didn't expect to lose him. It came on very suddenly, like it often does for animals who instinctively hide when, you know, they hide their illness and when there's something wrong, because in the wild, they need to protect themselves. And then we don't find out until it's really advanced. And we found out that he had a tumor in the middle of his chest. And within, you know, really within two weeks, that was it. He, he We needed to put him to rest so that he wouldn't suffer. And um, I had no idea. So, and, and he died just about a year after my father died. So I had just completed the year of first, wow. you know, on the anniversary of my dad. And a week later, Poupon died. And um, animals are interesting beings. I mean, I think some animals are true soulmates who come into our lives very intentionally to teach us a lot about life, ourselves, 
um, and who also come into our lives because there's something they're going to get. You know, I think Poupon was, he was born outside, found outside. I think he was born from, I think he was feral, had a feral mother, um, was very frightened when we, when we got him, took him. He was very, very young, came out of foster care. That's how young he was. And I think I was a mother to this little being um, that really taught him how to trust and how to feel safe. Um, and he taught me a lot about being a mother. I don't have children. So he was, he gave me the experience, some experience of joy that you have in nurturing this little being. Taught me a lot about boundaries, a lot about stopping and playing and resting and having fun. And and I had no idea how hard the grief would be when I lost him. And I know you lost Libby. Oh, well, February 1st. Uh, so that anniversary is coming up. Yeah, so that anniversary is coming up. And and you had a similar relationship, wouldn't you say? I mean, he was like, she was a soulmate to you, right? Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, you know, Libby was, uh, uh, you know, with the exception of Melissa, uh, Lib- Libby was, you know, the biggest thing in my life. Yeah. And those those two ladies <laughs> made up most of my day. Yeah. I would think about them all the time and spend most of my time with them. Mm-hmm. Now, Libby, one of the things, the great things that she brought to me was having at least two walks a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the beginning and for many years, you know, a good decade, um, we're talking about, you know, 45 minutes or 60 minute walks um, twice a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, they weren't quite as long as she was getting older. She died uh, a year ago when she was 13 and a half and uh, walks were shorter, but we would, we would still have them. And that got me out into nature and helped me, uh, she balanced me, not just through that, but just by being around, uh, a yeah. big hugger. I would hug her and kiss <laughs> her all the time. And it's interesting that these are the things that I recognized I really missed. And I've talked about this before on the show, but uh, as you touched upon, I had no idea how much that was going to shake me, that yeah. that passing. And, and I think part of the reason that it does uh, is because all of us and, and so many people who listen to this show are like this. Our pets are family members and, and they're in our lives all day long. I'll just give you an example. When my, when my father passed, I didn't live with him anymore. Right. So he wasn't part of my everyday life and obviously big part of my life. But, but when he passed, it was just, I wasn't used to him just being there all the time. When Libby passed, oh my goodness, you know, everything changes. And as you know, you know, you, you're constantly, when you have a pet and especially you spend a lot of time with them, you're always thinking about them, what they, what their needs are, what, you know, oh, I have to do this. I have to you know, I have to take her out. I have to feed her. I have, you know, right. you have these rituals that sometimes they create, right? right. Yeah. So part of the void, uh, we always experience the void uh, when someone passes. Part of the void is just that they make up so much of your day. Yeah. Yeah. And and now it's not there anymore, and you have to fill that with something. Yeah, well, and their love is pure. You know, I remember um, I was talking to I think my therapist after Pupana died, and I was just really in so much pain. And and um, I said to him, you know, uh, there wasn't a day that went by that this being didn't bring me joy. Yeah, like we didn't fight. <laughs> yeah, know? that's right. We didn't. The, you know, I projected a lot onto him, like I think we do with our pets, of course. But the love is pure, and the relationship is just—it's the closest we get to unconditional love, yeah. which is a powerful experience for us humans. And so, and then, like you said, they are woven into the fabric of our lives. And so, everything I do every day, I catch myself even now, and it hasn't really been that long. But you know, I'll, I'll just—I'll—I'll I'll be doing anything. You know, I'll be getting in the car and I'll think about how I used to think about Poupon and like, you know, when I was going to get back and how I don't have to think about that anymore. Or I'll make tea in the morning and I'll go to take out the almond milk. And he would always come running and erding. He liked to, he didn't meow, he erded and he wanted his own almond milk and, or I would take a bath and, you know, he would always sit on the windowsill next to the bathtub. So they, and, and I remember also Bob, and I think you brought up a really important point. I remember thinking, this is so much harder than when I lost my dad and then feeling so guilty about that. Yeah, right. Oh my God. But the reality is this was a soulmate. He was like our child and he was somebody that I cared deeply about and thought about every day, all the time, whether I was home or not. And suddenly when they're gone, it feels like there's just like all the air has been sucked out of the house. Yeah. 
And there's this presence that's no longer there. And I mean, I do want to say to people listening, it does get better. It absolutely gets better. And because in the beginning, it feels like, oh my God, this is going to take me down. But it absolutely gets better. And um, slowly over time, we begin to appreciate the lessons that we brought to each other. And um, and as you know, and I'm and I'm not there yet, but I, I count on you. <laughs> um, you know, their spirit lives on and is present with us. I just think part of the grieving process for me is still I'm just still grieving his physical presence and and companionship and companionship. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I catch myself so many times during the day. I'll just start to cry and I'll think, "You were my little companion, yeah. and you're not here, and um, I can't believe I'll never see you again in physical form." You know. Now, there's another side to this uh, face of grief that um, I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody talk about. Uh, I know you and I both felt it, and I remember, you know, I remember feeling it and gone gone through it. You know, ten or eleven months later, Poupon passed, and and I remember you feeling it and then feeling guilty. And you do. This is what happened. You <laughs> feel this thing and then you feel guilty instantly, which is when our pets. Pass. And this is true for human beings, especially if you're a care, caretaker yeah. or something. There's also, I, I, for lack of a better word, there's also a certain freedom that comes from their passing. And if you're a caretaker, well, we're all caretakers of our pets. So then all of a sudden you're able to do things, and this is what I mean by freedom, that you weren't able to, to do before. One example, you know, you're, you and Michael come up and we hang out and the the typical thing was oh it's such and such a time i need to get back to poupon that was just yeah, yeah. got to feed him got to you know just don't want to leave him there for too long. too long yeah and then all of a sudden you know you're here and you go oh you know we don't have to we don't have yeah. to do that anymore or we took a trip together yeah we and, we, I we mean, went away imagine what it was like when you know when our animals were here, there was always, the, not only did we have to prepare for them to be well taken care of, which we did, but then we were thinking about them while we were gone and we were missing them and feeling bad and hoping that they were okay. And yeah. all of a sudden, there is a relief that you get, mm-hmm. a relief that I felt of, oh, I can stop worrying. And then I feel guilty for the relief. For the, for the relief. <laughs> exactly. I mean, even things like you can have flowers in your house before, before you had That's to be right. very choosy about which flowers, because if they were poisonous, Poupon might have That's right. eaten them or chewed them. Um, so many of those things. Yeah. And well, so there's that side to it too. Uh, I, I bring it up because I want people to recognize that they're not the only ones who might That's think right. these things. That's they're right. natural feelings. Also, nothing to be guilt feel guilty about. Yeah. I don't think I can. We could take that guilt away. But no, but but I will say this about that guilt because I was reading. There's a wonderful book called um, "The Grief Recovery Handbook for Pet Loss." There's also the Grief Recovery Handbook, yeah. um, but for pet loss in particular, I remember when I was reading that book where the author said something like, "You know, when the guilt comes up and it will, just ask yourself." Was there any malicious intent behind whatever it is you're feeling guilty about? And when the answer is no, you know guilt isn't the appropriate response. Right. It's something else, and it's probably grief. And I just really remembered that because um, there is relief. Poupon was a handful. He was a soulmate. He wasn't an animal. You know, he wasn't an animal. This cat got into everything, and was a hunter and. He wanted to live the way he wanted to live, and we were going to basically bend ourselves around him. And so there's been a huge weight off of my shoulders, not having to worry about him. But I, of course, would give all of that up to have him back. That's the point there. Yep, exactly. So that's another side to pet loss that Mm -hmm. I think is important to talk about. So those are the five faces of grief that I came up with. Youth, career, tribes, loved ones, pets. A couple of the things, if we just take a couple more minutes, because actually we're doing pretty good on time. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask, do you talk about in the book, leaning into your purpose? It's a big part of of your, of your book, of course, because you keep asking yourself about this particular question, and it had a lot to do with the career aspect of what we're talking about. What did you mean by leaning into your purpose? It's a good question. I forget where I said that in the book. When I started to really pay attention to Debbie's question after I had sort of got, gotten through the grief part, when I started to pay attention to stop doing things that bore you, yeah. I had to really look at what aspects of my work in particular um, no longer really fed me or challenged me or stimulated me in some way. And I remember there was somebody, and it might have even been you, Bob. Um, I remember having a conversation with someone, and I know it was a man, who said to me, I was talking, for example, about you know, the loss of 
being on stage in front of thousands of people and, you know, doing keynotes and because um, there is some magic in that, that, that the connection with the audience that I would love, but that, um, you know, there were just certain things I didn't want to do anymore. And, and somebody had said to me, listen, the reality is when you master something, when you've done it a lot and you really know what you're doing, after a while, anything great gets boring. Yeah. And um, in order for us to grow, we need to be stimulated and we need to engage in new activities. And so in paying attention to what bored me, what I realized was by starting to let go of some relationships, some activities, some elements of my work that were no longer feeding me. For example, there's a big difference between giving a 90-minute keynote, which is really supposed to be more inspirational and motivational even though I never liked those terms, but that's really, you can't go deep with people. Mm. Um, I decided that what wasn't, what what fed me more was doing smaller retreats for like 50 people where yeah. we could spend a weekend together and really talk about important issues and really help people. And so by looking at that, I began to get clearer and clearer about what my purpose is here. I mean, first and foremost, my purpose is to grow and evolve as a spiritual being. Right. That's my definition of my purpose. And I think it's a useful one for most people. Yep. Um, in addition to that, from my work perspective, I'm here much like Louise Hay. Louise Hay said, I'm here to help the people. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm good at. And I like helping people. I feel fed by that. And whether someone's struggling with a relationship or career or their health or their business, you know, I've got a big business background. I work a lot with CEOs, you know, helping them to grow their companies while they're growing themselves. I love that work. And my purpose, I sort of, I naturally began to lean into more of my reason for being here as I started to let go of things that just weren't top priorities anymore. Yeah. And, and, and I saw when you started to get into that, uh, that work, working with the CEOs and everything, and it would just fed you, you, yeah. oh my God, you start talking about it, you light right up, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, where's the other stuff? You've been there, done that. You had done it. Yeah. And I do want to say this, cause I think this is important. One of the, every time I write a book, I don't know if you do this, but every time I finish a book, at some point I ask myself, what did that book have to teach me? What did the writing of it and the book itself have to teach me? The big lesson in Waking Up in Winter is the importance of learning to wait, to sit in limbo, to dismantle one's life, to release the things that maybe no longer feed us, and just wait with the space. And I think this is a midlife conversation. Wait with the space and allow what's next to come to us. Yeah. And if we're clear about who we are and what's important to us and and if we're clear that we want to feel alive, we don't have to figure out how to do it, but that we want more aliveness, and that's really ultimately what this book is about, wanting more aliveness, then it's like you know, a power greater than us lines up to support us and brings to us opportunities. And one of the opportunities I write about was being introduced to angel investing, which you know was something you're right. I mean, I suddenly joined this group of professional angel investors and started investing in companies and started working with some of the CEOs to support them and working with other members to choose the companies that would invest in. And every time I would go to a meeting or have lunch with a colleague, I would leave feeling invig invigorated and energized and excited. And that's what became my guiding force, was what's giving me energy, what's making me feel alive, what's stimulating me intellectually, what calls to me energetically and says, do more of this? And I think that's a really good thing to pay attention to in midlife. I think so too. And you were learning, you know, when you started to go to uh, with that group, you started to hang out, you were learning so much from them. And it's one of the reasons, it's, a good, it's just a, a good introduction for me to say this. It's one of the reasons that I don't feel bad. I know there's a lot of people who love this show. And I, I know that a lot of people love what I do. And I haven't stopped. I've just taken a break. But I've taken a break for the same exact reason. I'm learning a new craft, yeah. which is screenwriting. And, and you have so much energy. Like, you you light up, too. Like, you started to talk about that. I'm like, whoop, there you go. Yeah. You paid attention. This opportunity came to you, and you grabbed a hold of it, and it's been seems like it's really been feeding you. It feeds me in so many ways, obviously. You know, I, I love writing, but this is a whole new way of writing. And I've had so much to learn. And, I, you know, I, I've been working with a mentor once a week and I've learned so much, yeah. not just as a writer or a screenwriter, 
but as a storyteller. And I see myself, I know you see yourself as a writer. I see myself as a storyteller more than anything. Mm-hmm. So anyways, the reason that I brought that question up, leaning into your purpose, you gave the exact answer that I expected you to give is perfect. Uh, but it's also, I think, what led you into writing this book, putting out as a memoir, as a journal, what I liked what you did with it, I think in the rewrite of your journals was you wrote it so that it sounded like you were talking to me or, you know, talking to the reader. Mm-hmm. I, well, because a lot of times, I mean, in a journal, I'm talking to myself. That's what, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like I'm talking to you because that's what journal writing is. Yeah. And you're right. You know, when the energy I felt when Michael said, why don't you just publish a journal is the energy I still feel. And, you know, well, probably I have the next journal I mean, there is a journal after this one that continues on, and I'll probably edit that and put that out at some point, too, because I have the energy for it. I know a lot of people in reading your reviews were inspired inspired to either start or get back to journal writing as a result of of reading it, which is a really nice thing as well. I'm glad you wrote it. You know, I think it seems more natural that a woman would really relate to it. But I know that I'm not the only guy who really enjoyed, not only enjoyed, but got a lot out of this book. Mm-hmm. And maybe partially because of the career that you've had. You've had a career that any any man, and I'm saying that because we know uh, the gender e- inequality that exists. You've had you've had a career that any man would have been like thrilled to be able to have. Yeah. And so when you have a career like yours. You're when you're speaking, when you're writing, you're you're speaking to both genders, yeah. really. Yes. Uh, you know how it, it feels. I think, to- yeah. I mean, I think if you're a guy who is really at midlife too and is really questioning the direction that you're headed in and feeling like some things aren't working and you're not sure what will, I think. I mean, some of the emails I've received from men have been actually some of the most beautiful emails. Yeah. Um, so I think it does speak, you know, it is, my audience is primarily women, a high percentage of them, but I think it does speak to men. It speaks to us as human beings who are looking for something just deeper and more authentic yeah, in life. That's I mean, right. Really, so. So uh, people can get this book anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly it's on Amazon. You can get it at bookstores which is, you know, that's not always possible anymore. I know, um, I know. But you certainly are. Harper One is yep. the publisher? They're the publisher, yeah. Great. You enjoy working with them? Yeah, they've been great. They've yeah. been wonderful. That's really nice. Really wonderful. Yeah, my, my editor that's is, wonderful. is terrific, and the team there has been really great. So. And they were perfect for this kind of book, I think. Um, really uh, well-suited uh, for to, to put out yeah. a book like this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been published by Hay House, of course, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm still part of that family. It's an important family to me. Yeah. This particular book was different than what they typically publish, and so it, I just felt like it really needed a different publisher this time around. Well, thank you, Cheryl, very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. I always love talking to you. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, you're listening to Afterlife TV. You can find us at Afterlife TV dot com and uh, i'll be seeing you soon okay i hope you're doing well too thanks bye-bye